Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck and I'm your host and your name is Listener and that's what you do. You listen. Did we get through the holiday? One down, couple more to go. I don't know what your affinity is, whether you're a Christmas person, a Hanukkah, maybe you're a Kwanzaa guy. Regardless, you got one or two events coming up and probably some holiday parties. I'm talking office holiday parties. I'm talking a friend perhaps invites you every year to a holiday party that you don't really want to go. And fuck, who wants to play White Elephant for this long? And there's always that one guy in White Elephant or like Secret Santa who takes it way too seriously, who's like stealing gifts left and right. And you're like, hey, Chuck, why don't you fucking take your foot off the gas? It's a $25 gift certificate to Taco Bell, not the fucking Fabergé egg that you're treating it like. Chuck, man, whenever I play White Elephant and I get a gift that I want, I just kind of fade into the wall. You know what I mean? I just kind of, maybe I'm going to go to the kitchen, get a snack. Hope, you know, I hope that they forget that I got, you know, an $18 gift certificate to Pete's Coffee, and I can just palm that thing, and, you know, be four, four to five cold brews richer, depending on the price point that I'm purchasing it at. But that's how I approach White Elephant. You know what I mean? But the holidays are upon us. We got through Thanksgiving. I had a very nice one. Ate a lot. I have a weird relationship with food. <laughs> Welcome. I'm pretty sure the whole world does, or at least most of us. I, uh, you know, growing up, I was a heavier person. Now I'm not. But I feel myself plagued by, you know, thought of thoughts of what am I, what am I going to eat? How much should I be eating? Did I eat too much? And how can I work out to compensate the amount of calories I've consumed on a regular basis? I'm overcome by thoughts of food, my body image, and the way that I'm perceived. You know, I was a really heavy kid, so I did some irreparable things to my body that makes it just look weird. And thus, I carry myself in a weird way that's sort of slightly protective. Even though, you know, all things considered, you boys, uh, listen, ah, you know, I'm not fucking uh, Zac Efron over here, but... uh. You know, I'm doing better. I'm doing better than many. Especially most guys in their mid-30s. I mean, this is when... Whoa, I have, have, I've never said that about myself yet. Mid-30s. That's a terrifying prospect. But, you know, this is, this is when people really start letting themselves go. They start settling into their life body. <laughs> you know, the haircuts get a little shorter for the females. No, I don't, I don't mean to, you know, 
like generalize but you know guys start wearing things more for comfort and less for style the the reality is is i've started you know wearing these pair of dad shoes regularly because they're just so goddamn supportive and i think it's slightly ironic even though i am a dad and it's less ironic and more just doggone appropriate I wear these Hoka shoes, which are just, they're outstanding. I mean, I, they've got a sole on them that literally looks like you could, it, the the sole of the shoe is so thick that I think that you could probably climb up half of it and there would be a base camp there where you could rest before you scaled the rest of the sole of the shoe. <laughs> um, big sole, big sole. But, you know, luckily, thank God for Kanye West, the dad shoe is in, so I'm not completely you know, uh, deluded in, in my styling choices. Plus these are like a special Hoka that were made by outdoor voices. So, you know, they've got like a bit of a stylish bent to them, but inevitably if I looked at myself 10 years ago, I'd be like, who's that fucking loser? Um, style wise, person wise, I think I would just be like, Oh, there's Josh. Yeah. About, yeah, about the same. I, I could have seen that coming. <laughs> um, but yeah, people start to settle into their life body in their early 30s and they start to put on a little bit of weight and that weight just kind of doesn't come off. And uh, slowly, and it's a slow deluge, you know what I mean? Because for most of us, you know, we don't necessarily put on 50 pounds in a year and then all of a sudden, Jesus, it's just like three pounds every year until death. But, you, you know, you times three times 30 and all of a sudden you're like in your 60s being like, when was I 270? What happened? I was I was a 31 inch waist for my 20s. But yeah, food is weird. It's so tough because you have to eat it every day. And, and I'm a sober guy and I've talked about this on the podcast, but I've always felt though that people that have a true food addiction and are in 12 step about it or what have you. I mean, that is just a motherfucker of a disease because you can't abstain. You can't not eat. And our world is based around eating. Um, every culture eats, even the cultures with shitty food, even the Brits and the Irish, who I, I think self-admittedly would be like, ah, food's not necessarily our thing. We're more whiskey people. You know, even they are like, yeah, but we'll still crush some fish and chips and some shepherd's pie, which is you know, calorically dense. But if, look, if you're a Irish longshoreman named Schmitty on the docks of Dublin, in a, is that, do they, does Dublin have docks? But, you know, like on a rainy, freezing, cold night, you want, you know, you want something substantial. You're not like, mmm, a citrus glazed kale salad with pomegranates and avocado. This will um, give me enough energy to get through my, <laughs> rough life. <laughs> so yeah, man, this is going to be a weird time. This is when people put on the weight. This is when, uh, you know, we're slammed with it. I definitely eat a lot. I pretty much eat a lot every day. And I think that, you know, every day I go to bed regretting one or two choices. And I like kind of want to, I, I sort of want to conquer food in the same way I want to conquer sex in the respect of like, I've, you know, you get to a point where you're abstaining from drugs and alcohol and you start to see that like all these things that, you know, that are, what what do they call it? Like that are uh, 
of the flesh. I don't know. There's some phrase, you know what I'm saying? But like the, you know, like so many of the good things, the fun things in life are used as escape, right? And drugs and alcohol are one of them and shopping and gambling and debting and cigarettes are, are another. And, and, you know, sex and eating are, are some of the biggest offenders because they're, they're surreptitious because the idea is like, oh, of course, like sex is good. And so is eating. And it is, you know, within uh, a healthy ratio within within a certain level of moderation and yet like there's a part of me that just thinks that I'm better if I'm just like you know have a monk's relationship with sex like I'm you know that I'm literally living the life of a nun while also just having my nutrients piped into me with an IV <laughs> you know like I'm I'm literally drinking soylent and um, and never touching myself. <laughs> wow. Does that not sound like the worst life ever? No, I know. It, it, you know, none of that sounds altogether appetizing and I probably won't do it. But, you know, the reality is, is that I, I obsess on things and I like things that make me feel good. And more so than feeling good, I like things that allow me to escape self. I like things that allow me to not think about me. To have a reprieve from self and meditation and, and doing nice things for other people and like prayer and all those things. Yeah, those, they, they give me a reprieve, but that's hard. I got to fucking work for that. What, what do I got? I got to fucking sit quietly for minutes. No, thank you. I'll just, you know, stuff my face box with this delicious apple pie and stare at, you know, some version of internet pornography for a few minutes and I promise you that'll do the trick um but we're all you know we're all working on it we're all trying to do better and this is a weird time you know the year is going to come to an end it's a weird time why because we have like these arbitrary markers that tell us that it's a weird time because we think like something is ending and something else is beginning when in reality it's all fucking the same nothing's ending nothing's beginning you know, I, I don't, you know, calendars and whatnot is, a man, is man's creation. It's not really, right? There's a, that great saying where, um, or I don't know if it's a saying, this guy Anthony DeMello, who wrote a book called How to Love, um, talked about it. And, and it's like a parable that he says, or maybe it's just a joke, but he always talks about how um, there's a farmer who lives on the Ukrainian-Russian border, and his farm is literally dead set, half in Ukraine, half in Russia, with the perimeter line going straight through the middle of his farm. And so the representatives from Russia, when they're drawing the border line, came to him and said, okay, since you know the, the border line is directly in the middle of your property, you can either decide to live in Ukraine and be a citizen of Ukraine or be a citizen of Russia. What do you choose? And he says, Ukraine. And they go, what? How could you? Uh, Sergey? I mean, God, you're going to give up your citizenship to Mother Russia? Why? And he goes, I, I know it, it hurts me, but I just, I can't take another Russian winner. Right? <laughs> Did I just wrap that up in a beautiful fucking bow? 
you're welcome, everyone. But that's the reality, right? It's just like these invisible lines that we draw for ourselves that we tell ourselves are meaningful. But in fact, it's just more of the same. And my buddy Tony always talks about that. He's like, what's my New Year's resolution? More of the same. Just a little, just a little bit more of what I'm already getting, which is life on life's terms. I don't know. I feel like I have a certain level of sentimentality about these things, you know, because I become reflective in this time and I don't think I'm alone in that feeling. And I imagine that most of us do. And we start to think about, ah, what could we have done better? And, and where, where did we perhaps not give things enough energy or, and then there's that, you know, pressure to, to switch it around in, in January and, and, you know, tackle the year and, start some new things but uh inevitably I, I don't think any of that I don't I don't know if any of that's good at least it's not good for me I just kind of got to keep it keep it in the old day keep it in the now in the right now talking to my beloved podcast listeners so what else um on today's show and and I realize I'm doing a bit of a 12-steppy alcoholic rant, which is fitting because I have Steve-O on my podcast today. And it's not fitting because it's Steve-O. It's fitting because our conversation actually, you know, I, I, I can't wait to hear what you guys think of the conversation because it, uh, you know, I, I'm a, such a huge fan of Steve-O. I think he's a brilliant performer. He's brave. And, uh, and then in getting to chat with him, I just really grew even more respect for him as a man and and what you'll hear is him and I talking a lot about recovery and sobriety and whatnot um just as a reminder and I can only speak for myself uh we do wind up talking about AA a fair amount and what I will say is that I am not a representative of AA in any way um I'm just sharing my experience so I think that's important to uh to be said just because of the nature of the the anonymous portion, but we get into that too. But, you know, I think that people are used to hearing, um, a lot of his, his crazy stories of his life, um, before sobriety and even after and, and jackass and whatnot. And we definitely talk a lot about that. But what I was excited about was to sort of talk about his inner journey and what he's been through and how he's gotten to this place where he's kind of better than ever. So, this is one of my favorite pods. I feel so lucky that I got to hang out and chat with him. And I, I really appreciate it, Steve-O. Thank you for doing it. All right, guys. Enjoy. Here's Steve-O. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What about how's the YouTube model as opposed to when you were just doing the DVDs? Oh my God. Are, are, you, you want to go ahead and start? Is that cool? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm on. But okay, dude, let's fucking do this. Let's fucking roll. Because I, I bought those DVDs. Ah, uh, dude, that means the world to me. My DVD business was very lucrative for the people who uh, 
Never paid me. (laughs) 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 That's how I understand that whole chapter. And like, honestly, back then I didn't expect that I was going to live to spend any money. You know, I honestly didn't picture myself making it so much as to age 30. So I was pretty laid back about any, uh, you know, contracts or money. I just wanted attention. I figured I'd be dead and I wanted to be remembered forever. So were you, I'm trying to think about it. So would you get like an advance and then just be like, and whatever happens after this, enjoy your money? I don't even think I got an advance, man. I remember there being like one check for like 20 grand and uh, that was like pretty cool. Um, But then I just never, and and I remember my third DVD, the one that was like particularly fucked up called uh, Steve-O Out on Bail. Yeah. It, uh, they told me it was platinum by uh, before being released you know platinum before it even came out and and the standard for that was like a million uh for for something or other but because it was a non-theatrical dvd release the standard for platinum was a hundred thousand dvds and and they shipped a hundred thousand dvds before it came out so it was plat and i never fucking got a penny for that dvd that's why and i didn't really care you know it- I, I really didn't you remember that time when it was like your DVDs and then like bum fights? I do. <laughs> and backyard wrestling. Uh-huh. Was... And uh man, I remember sitting down at a bar uh at the Meridian Hotel, if that's even what it was called, and this guy introduced himself to me as like the creator or something of bum fights. No. And I was like really I was just like I'm really offended by your shit, you know? Like I don't think that's cool. And, and uh, you know, I was, you know, I could be a tough guy to be around at that time, but I really sort of gave the dude a piece of my mind. And and maybe some people listening don't remember what bum fights was, but it was like super exploitative. They'd be like, okay, you know, they'd go to, to you know, homeless street people and say 20 bucks, you guys fight. You know, yeah. like they would just get these, 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 you know, really, uh, you know, like vulnerable people and, and exploit them in terrible ways. The backyard wrestling was less bad because it was, you know, at least like willing participants. I think that they were like in a business sense, like taken advantage of pretty egregiously, yeah. but that, but they weren't like made to do anything that they, they weren't choosing to do, you know, that they wouldn't otherwise do anyway. So they were excited to be a part of it. And then there was me and I was, uh, yeah, I mean the business was a nightmare, but um, fuck, I just loved it. it what was the one where you ice skated over a pond? It wasn't a pond. A it was pond. the the Cleveland River, which famously was so polluted that it actually caught on fire at some point in history. Um, and uh, this was um, when uh, I when I was there in January of two thousand one. Um, I, I saw this river. It was partially frozen where some, uh, I mean, it was all frozen, but some parts were like dry and white and the other parts were like slick and wet. And I looked at it and I said, I'm not leaving Cleveland until I get ice skates and skate around on that until I fall through the ice. It, I remember watching and being such a fan of Jackass and then buying these DVDs. And even, you know, at the time I was 14 thinking like, oh, he's missing some of the, some of the safety that Jackass was affording him. Like, it seemed like Jackass was this controlled chaos, and then I'd watch the DVDs and be like, oh, I, Steve-O, Steve-O needs some some backup here. 
That's probably fair to say. <laughs> yeah. And um, constraints, that was my mode, maybe. you know. And and you know, I've told this this so many times, but I, I never get get bored of it. It's like such like kind of rich history. And the way it worked with Jackass was that when the pilot got ordered, um, our director slash creator, you know, Jeff Terrain. He said, you know, okay, now the it's not a pilot anymore. It's been ordered to series, so we're going to shoot, you know, be writing your ideas. And and immediately I want you to take all of the footage that you have and send it into us because we can acquire it, we can license it and put it straight onto the show. Right. And so I was all excited. I'd been filming, you know, shit since I was 15. I've been making videos. And I had all this footage and I sent it in. And uh, and he told me that of everything I sent in, unfortunately, nothing, they couldn't show anything. I mean, granted, in some cases, it was just because it was like shoddily, shoddy footage. Right. But, but for the most part, like, it, it was uh, me, they, they, they had like certain rules in effect, like... MTV was very touchy about anything involving fire because they had had like a number of lawsuits, notably with Beavis and Butthead. There was, you know, because uh, when there was a fire in a trailer park and a little kid burned, you know, killed his sister in a fire. Right. Uh, they said, well, like, why, you know, why, why did you do it? And he said, because Beavis said, fire, fire. And so they sued MTV, and MTV apparently really lost a big thing. And they had a number of deals with fire. So the MTV had no sense of humor about fire. And when it came to jumping off of things, there was a certain height that uh, above that height, you just weren't allowed to do it. And my What was the height? Oh, I can't remember what the height was. I don't even know if they Why had we, a number, but... Uh, is it extreme? I mean, is it 15 feet or is it... I think, I think it would depend on what you're jumping on to, you right. know, but like the, whatever it was, like my specialty, like, you know, if I had a specialty in my early days, I wouldn't even say my early career because before I had a career, <laughs> uh, it was jumping off of rooftops. I was always looking for like apartment buildings and, and pools and like to see like to jump off the roofs of buildings into shallow pools. Is that, are you an autodidact? Are you self-taught? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Really? I'm not, I'm not familiar with that word, but yeah, it describes me. Because you, I, I saw you recently in David's vlog, maybe jump off oh the roof. Oh my God, yeah. How do you learn in, that? Into my hot tub? I didn't learn shit. I forgot to fucking cannibal and I broke my ass. That was like, the worst. But like, it's incredible. I mean, you're an athlete. I, I, I like to consider myself, and thank you. Uh, you know, I've, I've certainly put some work into uh, developing my skill set over the years. Um, but, yeah, so my specialty was jumping off of, like, high shit into shallow water and, I would, and lighting myself on fire, you know? And so for the most part, I was on fire jumping from too high, and that was so much of my footage. And then when I found out, like, oh, my God, they couldn't get any of my footage onto the show, my immediate concern was that Jackass was going to be a very watered down, like, like what kind of a, like, oh, I got, like, nervous about, like, how's it going to be a popular show if they don't let us do anything? Right. But at the same time, in the same thought, I was like, oh, man, I'm going to have my own, like, Too Hot for TV DVD series. Like, you know... Girls Gone Wild, whatever, you know. I think all those guys are in jail. The Girls Gone Wild guy. Is he in jail? The guy, what's his name, Joe Francis? He did some time. And I, the yeah. Bum Fights guy, I think, is in jail. I, I, I mean, I certainly wouldn't be terribly surprised, but I think that the Joe Francis guy is a little bit, 
you know, more slippery than that, then they could keep him in jail. And he, uh, we, we went to, uh, into a meeting with that guy to, um, uh, you know, to talk about distribution. And I just remember him being a really, really, uh, unlovely creature. Oh, I have no doubt. (laughs) (laughs) Unlovely creature. What was it like? Um, What was it like? You know, I worked for Nickelodeon as a kid, which is under the banner of MTV. Sure, Viacom. Viacom. Yeah. And I did this show, Drake and Josh, and it was like this big hit over time. But when we were doing it, no one really cared. And over time, it's really grown into this massive thing. Was it similar in the first season or two of Jackass? Because you guys kind of, I remember watching, you seemed like pirates for the first season or two. And then all of a sudden it was like, by season three, we were like, oh, like, They've got well, some fame. Right. And and I think that's uh, because we were into shooting season three by the time season one had like... Started airing? Right. We were, we were still... Th- wait, no, that can't be right. No, nah, because season one started airing before they even ordered more. So that, that makes no sense. But uh, I'm looking for something kind of like... A, you know, explanation because my experience was totally different that overnight, you know, it really? was like absolutely fucking bonkers. Instant you know, hit. I think the, the MTV instantly was wildly popular. Like they told, when I got the call, uh, they said, and, and keep in mind too, that like I earned for the entire first season of Jackass less than $1,500 for the whole season. How is that possible? Because uh, <laughs> because they they uh, I don't know, man. I just, just gladly accepted whatever the first suggestion was, and the pay scale for the first season of Jackass for me was that if uh, if I did a, a stunt that was like legitimately risky, you know, that like where I could get like you know seriously hurt somehow. You know, for dangerous shit, it was $500 per bit. I wasn't getting paid on a per episode basis. It was a per bit. Oh, they and, fucked you good. And so per bit, and it was like, if it was really dangerous, it was 500 bucks per bit. And if it was just like low impact, kind of like man on the street, sort of like, you know, you're not really gonna, you know, in any danger, yeah. 200 bucks. And so I filmed the whole first season in the, uh, you know, over a five day period. And um, on the end of this five five days, I, I had been bitten by a shark, which they weren't even allowed to show. And my finger was like all mangled; it was all bandaged up. I was all banged up. Uh, and I and and the, it was the last morning before we parted ways. And predominantly, I just wanted to write down a list of what I expected deserved to be on TV. Right. You know, like. And, and I, th- I thought, you know, just to make sure, like, that just like this is what I'm looking out for, you know, like how, like, make sure that none of this slips through the cracks. And uh, I thought, I figured, while I'm at it, why don't I just, um, you know, put put what I expect to be paid next to each thing. Why you not? Know? And it was like, okay, I got bitten by a fucking shark. You know, the <laughs> yeah. shark. The, that bit was called shark hug. You're like shark hugging. I think I should be able to pay yeah. my rent for the month for, if I get for, bit by for, a shark. Right for for hugging the shark 
and getting bitten with like put 500, you know? There was like a, a backflip off of a 10-foot ladder into a kiddie pool full of elephant poo. That you and, left in your family's yard? Yes, that <laughs> yes. I totally left in my fucking family's yard. Yeah, Solid. it was terrible. And um, that, uh, because I could have like, you know, really a 10 feet backflip on into a little kiddie pool, I could totally have broken my ankle. I'd say, okay, 500. And then there is, uh, I think that might have been it that I charged 500 for. There was swallowing a goldfish. Was that the first scene There's that first introduced scene. you? Right. It, it was yeah. The, I, I had something that was just totally unremarkable on the first, you know, the the first episode, and and, and whatever. It just didn't do, do anything. But then on the second episode, I did the goldfish trick, where I swallowed a goldfish and then I barfed it into a fishbowl, and uh, that was that's your what coming changed. out. That's what, and even when it happened, because I had been featured in, in uh, a number of skateboard videos, and within the skateboard community, I had developed a bit of a reputation as like Steve-O, this crazy guy. And, and uh, as soon as that goldfish came out and, and landed in the fishbowl and it, and it was swimming, I, yeah, I remember Johnny Knoxville saying, uh, he said, well, Mr. O, if you weren't already famous, I'd say you're going to be now, <laughs> <laughs> which, which was really meaningful, man. Uh, that was such an intense little, little incident, you know, like I was too nervous to address the camera myself. So the way that bit started, it was, Knoxville said, hi, I'm Johnny Knoxville and this is Steve-O and he's going to do the goldfish trick. And I just didn't say anything. I was just too nervous to address the camera at that point. I that was my first that. bit. That was my first bit that I shot. And how old were you? 26. I had just turned 26. And so that airs. And what's the first? And that one, when I wrote it on the list, I wrote Goldfish Trick. And then I wrote on me. 200. <laughs> oh, on me. <laughs> I wrote 200 because I wanted to be considered... I like my pride dictated that that was just kind of funny. It was low impact. When me like let me if you're if we're honest, like like it could have gone down backwards and like torn up my esophagus. I could have choked on it and died. Sure. Like it, like what the fuck is wrong? I was broke. I was dead broke. You know. But I, there was what, an like, honor. An I, honor I, 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 It was it was honor and pride, man. <laughs> Two hundred bucks for the goldfish. It's funny because I've done like action movies before and that is a part of it, which I don't know if a lot of people know that the stunt performers are getting their base salary. But then if they do something like roll out of a moving car or blast through a window, they get a little bonus. They get a little some uh -huh. extra. And it's like and it kind of incentivizes the guys to like really fucking go for it. Right. Because they're going to have an extra grand at the end of the week. Um, and and, and, and speaking I try to be more like uh, less of an idiot these days. So like because we have uh, an audience here and, and uh, you know, I'm mindful about, about being, being intelligent, I'd love to take this opportunity to give you a bottle of my brand new hot sauce, which is called Stevo's Hot Sauce for Your Butthole. I would love it. Yeah. God, how generous, my man. Just to paint the picture now, Steve O is from. Oh my God, this is incredible! Look at this. It's delicious. It's a. It's beautiful signage. It's absolutely delicious, and uh, to launch this product, my uh, my fiance inserted a turkey baster deep in my butthole, filled with it. She squeezed it and filled my rectum, and I bent over and I had a massive product launch. Wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> and this, I just got the, the whole wall in this uh, room right there is, is boxes of it stacked with like the first huge shipment. When you find a woman like that, you don't let her get away. Right. right. That's true. <laughs> Down uh-huh. the clown. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this, this is available at stevo.com. Mm. Along with all my uh, my crazy merch, I actually sell pictures of my penis. Really? At stevo.com, yeah. And how, at what price point? Um, I think eight bucks. <laughs> <laughs> Plus it's on a magic pen, where if you hold it right side up, I'm wearing solid black shorts, but if you turn it upside down, the shorts disappear. Wow. Yeah, I remember we were like, maybe you've yeah, seen Yeah, I those used to have past. those. Right. Now, this... It's actually like from a bit, which I haven't released out, but it's a bit on my tour. And uh, the premise for this, this is one of my latest stunts. And it's so hard to come up with original ideas at this point, but this one is a fucking gem. Uh, I, 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 th- I was thinking, you know, women can, can just paint their breasts mm. and cruise around. You know, like nobody's offended if the breasts have been painted. Sure. So I surmise that I should be able to paint my dick. And do whatever I want, you know? And so I was like, okay, this is really fucking a funny premise, you know? And I was like, okay, how am I going to do it? Like dick painting. And I cruised around. I thought, okay, like, what's it most similar to? Spandex. And I thought, okay, I'll make a, uh, uh, a cyclist suit, you know? Like, um... A uh, like a hardcore cyclist suit with my ten speed bicycle and and like spandex shirt, the whole kit, helmet. Yeah, full of tour right. de France. Tour de France, and that, but we just painted on the shorts. And so, uh, you know, I'm getting ready. I went around like like crashing the bike in public in front of unsuspecting people, like being mindful to not do it in front of women or children. Sure. But like with, like when we spotted a you know a good mark, I'd, yeah. get, I'd sneak out of the car, pull the bike off the bike rack off the back and like ride and just crash into some <laughs> shit in front of them, you know? And, uh, you know, they'd reach out their hand and help me up and I'm laying there with my schlong out. <laughs> it's pretty brilliant. It's, I, I was real, thank you. I was, uh, really excited about the bit. And, um, I actually filmed it while I was still on probation too, which was pretty reckless. But, um, so, so before leaving and, and, and it was, it was without any thought. As I put together this suit, you know, I, I had a, the, my spandex shirt was blue, and I was like, okay, I got a big gallon of black paint, right? My girl, she's a set designer. She does, like, all this art department shit. So she did a really fantastic job painting on these shorts. And uh, I'm all excited, and I fucking, like, uh, before we left, I got her to take a photo of me hoisting up the bicycle, you know, like, all right, and like, just, uh, and I texted that photo to Johnny Knoxville. Yeah. And then he writes back, well, that's the smallest black dick I've ever seen, (laughs) because it's painted black. And I didn't even think about it, like, with using black paint. But uh, in any case, so so there's this whole bit, and I screen the footage. That's how my new tour works. Is that I have a like, uh, you know, an, an act. The whole show is a uh, is a live comedy show about this like, you know, these these you know precious few ideas. I have like eight of them in the show. It's called my bucket list mm-hmm. of uh, jackass stunts that that just never happened, you know. And I finally went through with them. I made this whole show out of it. And after each bit in the show, I screened the exclusive footage. So you see, like, the dick painting and, like, you know, all, all this other crazy stuff. It's so funny because I was with a buddy who's a big fan right before I came here. And I said, well, what would you want me to ask Steve-O if you could ask anything? And it's a testament to you and how, you know, sort of clued in you are with your audience because he was like, 
the bucket list? Like, is there anything that he hasn't done that he wishes? Ah, that's he, rad. So it's, I mean, it's really interesting to to see, like, my first question as a 32-year-old man now who has aches and pains. Are you in pain? Ah. Uh, what hurts? You know, like, it's, uh, I, I've been really pretty fortunate. I'm starting to notice, like, my shoulders a little bit, and I don't even know what that's from. Yeah. Maybe I have, like, some kind of rotator cuff-like deterioration i'm not sure but it's nothing like even but like even accountants serious. have that <laughs> like, right uh-huh. you know what for, i mean for sure for sure it's incredible how fortunate i've been i have um uh um like really no like significant permanent damage outside of like awful fake teeth and terrible tattoos <laughs> you know um there is a, i have an esophageal condition called mm. barrett's esophagus which is like potentially really scary because um you know i'd say it can turn into throat cancer you know so i, I monitor that pretty closely is that with, from uh, the whippets i don't know man I, I don't think so it's possible um I, I just I think it's it's acid reflux has a lot to do with it. Uh, There's uh you know certainly um so I take uh every day I take a Nexium as an antacid, but if I were to really like point to something that uh that like really troubles me and makes me like physically uncomfortable, it's not any like any damage like from injuries or, or anything like that it's just this like and i think it's 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 alcoholism man i think that yeah. like there's just like this this i carry just like tension you know like i don't act like it i don't think but i really like just i feel like in a uh, a perpetual state of anxiety and yeah. like somehow stress i just have this like looming overall sense that everything's not okay or if it is okay right now it's not gonna be okay and like it's, and I think that this really is like classic. Just you know, I just have alcoholism, and it manifests in this way. But I was recently talking to, uh, describing this to my dad because my dad said my sister mentioned the same thing and how I would understand, but he doesn't. Yeah. Because all the alcoholism's on our mom's side of the family, and I was like, yeah, dad. Like you know, he brought it up, and I said, yeah, dad, I'm. I'm palpably uncomfortable right now. I can just feel like feeling my forehead, just all this like ah, tension. And I'm just like, that's how I am. Let's like, just like, I just deal with it in my life. You know, there's things that we do to treat our alcoholism, which certainly help a lot. Um, But yeah, it's not all bad. I went on to describe that, um, that having this this sense of impending doom that everything's not going to be okay like oh like this this fear you know this anxiety i think it really drives me to constantly be just hustling to try to like protect myself from things not being okay and as a result like you know I'm not the most wildly successful guy in the world, but fuck do I work, man. I am like I hustle like like I it's like masochistic how how much I work to be on tour and like trying to create content. I mean, I'm sure you're the same way as far as like hustling yeah. with putting up podcasts and being uh you know, like in this sort of new media, you know, this digital space, it's a fucking lot of work. It's totally self-driven because we no longer have the excuse of being at the mercy of the gatekeepers. Right. So it's really in the palm of our hands. Like if you work hard on a video today, you could upload it and there's a good chance if it works, you could be like, oh, I made five grand by right. next week. And it was all because I decided to to do it. 
I'm a sober guy too. Oh, cool, man. Yeah, man. How long have you been sober? 11 years. Me too. Crazy. When's your day? Uh, March 10th, 08. February 15th, 08. Wow, dude. dude. Congrats, man. You too. That's super cool. So, so, so I wonder, like, I mean, you know, I'm sure you probably relate to everything I just said. Totally. You know? I, I totally relate. And it's something I've thought about recently is that. You know, it's sort of like, and and we talk about it in, you know, our secret club, which is like, you know, is that these things that we feel were like things that were um, at their, you know, it was a need for shelter and security, right? At their, at their base sort Uh of primordial nature to, you know, accrue shelter and enough food to eat and someone to procreate with. But inevitably for me, that becomes unchecked and I want multiple. gone, uh... Yeah. Gone awry. Yeah, like I want multiples of these things. So I, re- I realize now that it's never, it shouldn't be a surprise to me that because I'll never be able to obliterate these things, right? Like right. I'll always need shelter. I'll always need to. Sure. That at times it's going to become unchecked, that it's going to sure. reveal itself as like, why am I so locked in this idea that I need a 10 course meal and multiple people to procreate with. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. You know? So it's, it's that balance and it's frustrating for me cause I'm an alcoholic and I like black and white and I just want to rid myself of it and walk the earth. Like, you know, Highlander, like sure. a, a perfect spiritual being. Right. Understanding that it, I, I don't know if I'll ever get there. It's uh, it did. I'm, I'm so glad that, that I, I mentioned that man. And, and to, to have that in common is really cool. Yeah, man. Um, I, uh, yeah, dude. And I love that you call it the secret club. I'm, I'm pretty, uh, pretty mindful of, of, uh, of, of all that too. It's a hard thing, right? I mean, I love Mark Marin and he's a sober guy, like 20 plus years and he'll talk about AA and I think it's cool. Like, I think it's, you know. uh, I did his podcast and, um, didn't know that we were recording yet. Oh, really? And I said some, I mean, which is fine. I mean, I wasn't hardly, but it was interesting because I had just come from, you know, doing a, a public talk at, you know, the secret club. Yes. And I was like, the first thing I said to him, again, not realizing that we were recording, I said, it's crazy how I can like be nervous in like a room, you know, talking about things I'm like really like pretty comfortable about, you know? And I was, just came from doing that, and I was, like, nervous in this room of, like, 100 people. Yeah. But, like, I'm somehow totally at ease talking to millions of people. Right. You know? Yeah. Because like, uh, it's less vulnerable? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I really don't. Uh, I th- There's something just about like, the, all I see is a microphone, maybe, you know? Like, I can't really. Something clicks in. Right. But uh, it's it's crazy, man. Um, and I guess it's, since we're on the subject, I'm not like I, I you know, I think uh, we. It's really an interesting. I don't know how many how much people care to hear about it, but like I've been giving a fairly you know good amount of thought to the concept of anonymity, and I think that anonymity, as it relates to our secret club, is really really misconstrued. Mm. You know, it's like if we're. Uh, you know, talking about like the actual, you know, original purpose for, for the use of the word anonymous. It was because of the people who started the secret club, there were only about a hundred of them. Right. And they knew that roughly 10% of the population suffers from alcoholism. So a hundred people trying to help and, and, you know, help 
10% of the world. Like, no way. They were afraid that, that they would not be able to conduct their, their normal business, their, their, their regular lives. They had to lead somewhat normal lives outside of this secret club. Mm. And that they, they, they used the word deluged. They would be deluged. They wouldn't, they'd be swamped with like requests for help. So they, they, they had the anonymity factor to protect their ability to have some kind of a normal life because there's too many people to help. Yes. That's obviously not, you know, a concern anymore. Now, the most widely, you know, assumed, you know, the most widely understood reason for for anonymity is that people think, okay, if uh if you go out there and say that you're a member of the secret club, and go ahead, I'll go ahead and say AA. Sure. If you go out there and say, you know, I'm a member of AA, and then you get loaded, you know, if you end up drunk, then that's going to create the impression that AA doesn't work, and we can't have that because because uh, it would be bad for the program to like go represent it, and then you know. Yeah. But sure. that's it, it's to me such utter bullshit that whole thought it's so utter bullshit and like i can i can really qualify that statement by saying that like say if somebody is uh they get in, in great shape. All of a sudden, they're just noticeably just ripped. You yes. know, Zac Efron, you know? And they, and, they, and they come out and they say, oh, guys, I became a member of 24-hour fitness. <laughs> right. And fuck, look, I'm so shredded. Protein so powder. dope. And I just can't even, I'm just waving the flag of 24-hour fitness. And then let's say, you know, a few months later, a year later, they're just like not in shape at all. They're an absolute slob. There is not a single person that's ever going to think oh well 24-hour fitness doesn't work no they're going to be very clear they're going to be very clear okay it, this person stopped working out yes you know nobody doubts the gym nobody doubts like they know it works and i really feel that at this point you know like I don't think anybody doesn't think that uh, that what we do to stay sober works. You know, I mean, if there are certain people that just have like this, you know, they're predisposed to like not believe in it. You know, nothing. Uh, AA is alive and well, and there's I don't think any anybody getting loaded is gonna is gonna you know negatively impact the impression that people have of AA. So. So now with that said, like anonymity to me is incredibly precious and for an entirely different reason. I'm not worried about protecting AA from, you know, a bad image. What I'm worried about is that if 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 we go around, if I go around and I'm like, you know, waving the flag and say, hey, check it out and I'm part of this thing, it gets really, really slippery because it's it's hard to picture that I would ever be doing that mm. to not try to benefit myself in some kind of a financial way with you know prestige and property and power you know like yeah egoic right need. and 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 that gets like that's there's a whole like sliding scale of like just areas of gray where like it goes all the way to just to any like even like. Uh, professionalism of of you know the secret club like it, it's it, and and this is to me so particularly important because in a mind-boggling like truth the the, the um Occupations that have the highest rate of relapse in mm. alcoholism are specifically occupations within the Treatment. recovery. Yeah. 
Like, that's fucking crazy. Imagine if uh, the highest rates of cancer were doctors that treat cancer. Well, it's you know, like I'm, it's like when I meet fat yoga teachers. I'm like, you're not taking the classes, huh? You're just teaching them. <laughs> okay, I think it's, that that's fair. That that's fair to say, and that and it just like when 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 you professionalize it, you know, when you're like you know working in recovery, like I, it just and I think that people do it with the best intentions, you know, like a lot of the times, sometimes not. But I'm just like, so, so that's where anonymity for me is just so important. It's like, fuck, I have to keep my recovery so sacred and so separate yeah. over there. And I can't, I can't ever like, and like here, here, you know, like and right now I'm like, you know, I'm just like spe speaking with you, like candidly about how, how I feel about it. Um, I really don't think that, that I'm doing anything to, to benefit my uh, reputation or, you know, enhance my prestige or my finances by sharing these opinions. But uh, it's a hard it's it's an interesting balance. I, I love whenever I hear either people attack sort of 12 step and or sort of make the decision when they'll say, well, that's not for me. But, I, you know, I've had I have friends who gave up drinking with hypnosis or with religion. Right. And I always say, fantastic. My hat's off to you. <laughs> I always want to say, like, let, let's get this out of the way first. Alcoholism is winning and has been winning since we learned how to turn fucking grapes into wine. Sure. Like, people have been dying sad deaths from alcoholism right. for sure. millennia. And, and to this day, uh, the statistic is that 95% of all alcoholics will die drunk of causes related directly to alcoholism. Yeah. And when I first heard that, I thought, man, so 5%, like 5% like make it, you know? And I was just thought, fuck that, man. If that's the odds I'm up against, like, no. And, 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 and knowledge of those statistics actually kept me loaded mm. for, uh, you know, for the, the longest time because I'm just, I just resigned myself, you know, my, my actual spiritual motto was like, without knowing it was let go and let alcohol, yes. <laughs> you know, like I was resigned to drinking and using drugs until I died. Did and you ever try to get sober before you inevitably got sober this last time? I did. Uh, my mom locked me up in rehab when I was 20 years old in 1995. Yeah. And uh, that was when I heard the statistic for the first time. I was like, okay, well, fuck that. And I actually made a pretty conscious decision to like not even bother with it. Can you point, because like to your point, and I think this is interesting, like whenever someone gets sent to, you know, um, to 12 step when they get a DUI, and I, right. I don't know if there's an illusion here, but I'll, I'll dispel it right now. The courts never met with a representative from AA. They just Correct. saw it from far away and said, this seems to work. Sure. Let's, and AA just said, sure. So, right. You know. Yeah, we, like court mandated, you got to go to this many AA meetings. Yeah, like we'll take all comers. But sure. like we don't have any agreement with the courts. There's of course no, not. And, and, but, Even though they, they do have what's called a court card where like someone in, at the meeting will sign off on your slip or a house went. slip. Yeah. If you got to get well card from the judge. But, <laughs> but I have friends who like literally went to these things, got a DUI and were, had no interest, just sure. did it because they had to years later, got sober right? and can point to, I wasn't That's ready where the then. Was planted. Yes. So, yeah, did I mean, you find that in our literature? They talk a lot about that, but um, not a lot. But they distinctly do talk about it. I, uh, yeah, 
I, I can say, yeah, and I can describe the thought process there too. Initially, when I heard those statistics, you know, in 1995, I thought, fuck it, you know, I'm not even going to bother. Yeah. I stayed out there. Those statistics kept me loaded essentially for the next 13 years. Over the course of those 13 years, I got in serious trouble with all kinds of different substances, you know, and they're in like where I'd, I had to recognize, okay, like I, I lived a life that was, uh, it was like awake for two days doing cocaine, you know, the entire time. And then when I crashed, I would, I would sleep for like close to a day or whatever, you know. Yeah, recovery. So I, I described my lifestyle as, as two days on, one day off. Two day, and then repeat. And this was like largely like for, for years. I was just in this, you know, awake for two days and sleep for, you know, a day off. And, um, and then, the, then, then two days turned into like three days and it got like, you know, crazier and crazier. But like, and, and I would lose weight and it would be like really, you know, I mean, I was a fucking hardcore cocaine addict. And um, would you still be able to show up to work? I, I would, yeah. On I, time, like, without much, much yeah, I just couldn't, like, speak for what condition I would be in, you know? Sure. And, like, if you saw the first Jackass movie, like, I'm pretty seriously coked out in, in most of the scenes mm. that I'm in. Um, and uh, and so, so there were, like, inevitably times where I was like, okay, fuck, I gotta, you know? And I would, like, you know, with my own willpower, be like, okay, I'm not doing cocaine anymore. And one time I made it six months... And then just like randomly, you know, like the subtle insanity. I couldn't think of a reason not to do it. And I did it. And sure. then like, I just couldn't stop. It was this, like the grip that, it, you know, and it was just like, wow. Like you would think like, oh, I didn't want that. Well, that was dumb. Don't do that again. But by once you open the cage door a little bit, then the whole gorilla comes out. And, uh, and then another time I managed to, to not do cocaine for an entire year, but again, the same thing happened and I was in its grips. There were times when I would say like, okay, I'm not going to smoke PCP. I'm not, you know, I would swear off certain substances, but not everything. It's so and, funny. Uh, we as addicts, cause like I was, you know, going as far as doing crystal meth and heroin. And yet you say things like PCP or, you know, special K and I go, oh, it's crazy. Right. Well, <laughs> you know? like, I, I didn't, I wouldn't smoke crack. And uh, I didn't do heroin. That's what I learned in 1995 in the rehab was that when people came in and said what their drug of choice was, that's how you had introduced yourself to the group. And if somebody said my drug of choice is crack, it was just like there was this like this Stigma. energy in the room. There was like, okay, that dude is not my fucking roommate. Like I'm the you would just say it was just like, oh, if he's crack, then like that person's life is over. So like the, judgment amongst thieves. Crack, and this was in the '90s, man. Like the crack had like come on really strong in the '80s, and like by the those like it was the like, and I was like, wow, I was terrified to do fucking crack. And I and, and it was so crazy to me because people would come in and say their drug of choice was powder or cocaine, just snorting cocaine. Yeah, and people would be like, pussy. <laughs> You know, like whatever the difference was between crack and, and powder cocaine, it was so stark. I remember, you know, when you're young and you're partying and people are just doing cocaine in the club and whatnot. And then when you inevitably make the leap into doing smoking it. And I remember like people, there was such a stigma. There was such a judgment. Like, sure, I can, you know, put half a fucking kilo up my nose on a Saturday night. But like you and your crack, you're like the, the right. you're the monster. And I wanted to be like, you, you've just decided to have a worse delivery system. Like we're going to the same route. I'm just taking the freeway and you're taking the scenic route. I don't route. know though, dude, because I would hear the people talking and telling and they would just be like, I did this for years and years. I did this for years. And then I 
took a hit of crack and I lost everything within this amount of time. Like it's just whatever stronger, the, better, faster. Whatever the difference is, there's there's a, a major difference. So, and 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 not to judge that anybody who does it or not, you know, I was just personally scared and I somehow maintained that boundary for the whole time. I never did crack. I never did heroin. But yeah, I did everything else, and and I was always trying to quit like one thing, you know, like, and I always ended up back on everything. So thankfully, like I like trying on my own, I failed enough times over and over that when I did come into, uh, you know, into the program, like then I was like, I just knew, okay, like I know what it's like trying on my own. I can't on my own. Like I'm powerless on my own. Like I was really clear about that. I feel like when people do come into the secret club and they get some, some time under their belt of sobriety and then they, they relapse that that's like so dangerous. Like, you know, and not to say people can't do it, but I compare it to like fighters and I'm a big UFC fan. Yeah. And like if you've had, if you've had like, you know, meaningful sobriety time, in the secret club and then you relapse that's like a fighter getting brutally knocked out and then after a brutal knockout they'll describe that fighter as having a glass jaw mm. you know like where and so like with with sobriety it's so crucial to keep that guard up you know because a knockout will give you a fucking glass jaw and then you get knocked out every time you know so many people relapse and they never really come back it's funny you talk about like when you just inch the door open and then you wouldn't be able to stop. And it's funny, like I, I married my wife and, and she has this beautiful family and siblings and, and they only know me as good old sober Josh, you know, sure. good old dependable helps mom in the kitchen, Josh. Right. And, and, you know, of course as outsiders, they'll say like, well, what what would happen? Like oh my god, they, <laughs> so, and, so fucking scary! Like I'm they, terrified. They it's asked scary. me like, what would happen if like? Because I think to them, uh, at least my wife's sister is sort of afraid that like the drink would hit my lips and I would spontaneously combust. And what I always say to her is like, it would be great tonight. Like I I would be a hit. It would be fun. I'd control it. I'd have one or two. But I was like, here's the problem. I said, I'd do it tomorrow. Yeah, and then yeah. within two weeks, the fucking wheels would be off. But right. tonight would be okay. I don't know. I don't even know that tonight would be okay. You I think? mean, I'm just so scared of, it, of this in general. You know, there, there, there's stuff like you hear it over and over. And it's so funny when people say, I'm, you know, I'm like really allergic to alcohol. If I take like just one drink, my whole face breaks out in cocaine. Yes. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. or my breakout in handcuffs. Like, I, I, I love those jokes, but they're, they're just so true, you know? And, um, and, and that, you know, brings me back to the, the statistics thing, how those statistics kept me loaded for another 13 years. But then once I finally like, okay, like I have to do this, you know, mm. when I was locked up in the psychiatric ward and I just can't, I realized like, okay, fuck, like I have to do this. In LA? Uh-huh. UCLA? Cedar sinai oh, Yeah, the Thallians. What's that? So you're strapped to the bed? Uh, initially, well, they they gave me the booty juice because I was like being... A little Haldol? Yeah, whatever whatever it was. Yeah, they yeah. gave me the booty the, juice and it fucking... I went from down. like... Yeah, I went from being a uh, combative for, to taking a nap, like pronto. And this is... When Knoxville and a Correct. bunch of the guys. Yeah. My, my intervention was March 9th of 2008. And so my sobriety date is March 10th of 2008. 
And um, when I was – and, and bec- they, they locked me up on what's called a 5150, which is a 72-hour involuntary hold. So three days of uh, involuntary, you know, locked up, committed to a psych ward. And because I was so belligerent when I showed up and I was like, you know, spitting on people, I was throwing furniture around, like trying – I was really – really unlovely and uh hmm. so they gave me the booty juice knocked me out and um and i woke up uh in the part of the hospital as i remember i woke up where the doors don't open and i'm locked down and they had changed my status to 5250 which uh is a two-week involuntary hold nice i'm really grateful for that too because 72 hours wouldn't have done the trick i don't think if i was allowed out 72 hours i think i'd have gone straight to the drug dealer but because um, I think it was about a week into it where I just like sort of, you know. Well, will you paint this whole experience for me? Like, so who talks to you first? Do you see or get to talk to anyone outside of there? I had visitors. <clears throat> I had, um, I definitely had visitors. Uh, there was, um, I think that Knoxville came, the, you know, like I said, you know, the, the, the important people in my life came. Uh, they, you know, you talk to, uh, the, the specialist, whatever the doctor, you know, of the, the unit doctor. And, and, uh, and do you have your own room? I shared a room initially with a guy who was like hearing voices and like, was just whatever the voices that he was hearing, they were scaring this guy. He was like screaming out, begging, like, you know, like running around, like, uh, you know, there, there was, I, I actually watched a dude, um, pull his pants down and take a shit on the, the carpeted hallway in the unit. Solid. And, and then he like plopped onto it and rolled around, like smearing it all over himself, which sounds like, like, well, I was in the psych ward and I saw that. It sounds like some kind of a cliche made up thing. And I'm telling you that, 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 that happened. So there, there was, uh, there was that. And, um, they they also had the there's the west wing and the east wing if i recall correctly and the like whichever wing it would, would there was the wing for people who were particularly needed extra like you know restriction and was that was they, that i call it this the something else wing <laughs> you know <laughs> and I, I spent my first few days on the something else wing and are you there because i've heard similar stories of this with sober guys who or you know when they're drinking and they get put in a hold and then, you know, for better or for worse, once the booze wears off after 24 hours, their faculties you right. know, come back pretty quick. And I've heard many of them say like, and so I looked around the psych ward and said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the crazy house. Like in that, like, oh, these people are really sick. Sure. <laughs> like, it sure. was that was, I mean, there must've been a little bit of that. Um, I, uh, I think that, um, as far as like, oh, I don't identify with this. Like, I'm in the wrong place, you know. Like, I, I recognize, I think that I earned my spot there. Yeah. You know, I was uh, essentially not at the wheel. You know, I couldn't make it through any given day without just behaving in a way that was just so fucking wrong. You know, on some level, that it brought about just shame and remorse and humiliation. Can you track? the weeks or the months leading up to the intervention where you were like, Oh, like, of course this was coming. Like, sure. I, yeah, for sure. I went into free fall mode. 
In what like way? I went, I went into free fall mode and was like actively broadcasting my downward spiral. <laughs> right. Like I, I had uh, MySpace as an outlet, YouTube. I would upload you, you, YouTube videos to MySpace and uh, – and I also had, that was for sort of you know the the mass audience, and I had uh, a private email list of like roughly two hundred of the most influential people who had the misfortune of me getting their contact. <laughs> yeah, I mean they were just like industry people, agents, media people, like celebrities, like you know it was like I considered it like a I called it my my rad email list. Who was the best on there, Brad Pitt? Uh, there wasn't any Brad. <laughs> there wasn't Brad Pitt, but uh, tastemakers, important people. There, there Ponchos. were. There were certainly some important people. I mean, like for sure, like Harvey Levin. <laughs> oh no, that's like right. calling your parents. Right, he's not the one you want I, on that I, list. Was it like uh, like Gary from the Howard Stern show? Like you know, like God, it, it. it was no joke. You know, certainly Dr. Drew was on. You know, like there was a, there was a like one time Knoxville sent out a. Uh, a uh, mass email, and I copied and pasted his entire address book into my rad email list. So great, you know that was just loaded with fucking Tony Hawk asked to be removed from it, <laughs> <laughs> and I went off on him like to the whole list, like ah, oh, you know, like thanks a lot, Birdman. Well, I mean. T- just like just trying to I, I was I, like that was really like if I look back on it and what was uh, so gnarly about it is just that I I uh, d- developed a capacity to be genuinely like mean spirited mm. you know and I believe strongly that it's the spiritual axiom that the way we treat others is a reflection of how we feel about ourselves. You know, like like happy people just don't treat others badly. It's just like a law of the universe, you know? Like yeah. people who treat others badly are not happy people, you know? And so like my self-esteem, my whole self-worth, like my whole situation was just so bad that like, you know, it it was just evident because of the way that I was capable of treating people. And, and uh, I would try to hurt people's feelings and or damage their reputations. And, and with this platform of this rad email list and this like MySpace, like that's how, like it, when it got really dark towards the end. And, um, you know, back to those statistics about, you know, which kept me loaded, I really feel that when I was in that psychiatric ward that, you know, where I just determined, okay, I have to do this and I'm going to go like door to door. And I used to watch like the show Intervention on A&E, like largely to make myself feel better about, you know. Oh, I used to. Don't you find too that when you're in it, you lo- like I can I can't really watch intervention anymore. It doesn't interest me. Like right. I want to watch like guys succeeding in life. <laughs> like, I think that that's but, yeah. I, and and I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, like I'm not interested in intervention at this point. No. Yeah, back then though, I was obsessed. But I because it was say, romantic almost. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think that that's very true. But then again. Uh, it's not been that long since that Amy Winehouse documentary came sure. out, and I went to see it in the theaters. I think any any sensible person in their normal mind with any like 
would watch that documentary and just see it as like tragic, like upsetting. It would just be like, oh my God, like such a cautionary tale. But like my experience at the Amy Winehouse documentary was that I walked out thinking, man, fuck, I'm like, I'm not, I, I don't like, you know, really wrestle with like the obsession to drink or use very much, you know, but that like triggered some kind of, uh, Thoughts of like some kind of cravings, some yeah, kind of urges. Bit of a walk down memory lane. I walked out of the Amy Winehouse documentary. I thought, dude, if that's not fucking evidence that I'm a serious addict, like that made me want to get high. <laughs> well, I'm like thoroughly enjoying this conversation and I feel like it's like light and interesting. And yet I do know that there will be some people who will listen to this who will be like gobsmacked. You know, in the sure. sense, you know, and we talk about that in the rooms of like, we laugh at this sure. shit. Sure. There, and yet there are many people and maybe that's the normal way or maybe that's just because they're not as familiar where it's like all of this is, is quite startling to a certain extent. Uh-huh. It's weird that like just you mentioning the you know about the people listening and then all of a sudden i had this like this discomfort like creep over me like oh like I, you know and i'm thinking like what are people going to be thinking the whole oh, fuck them <laughs> i mean it's crazy no they you know i find uh, podcasts especially this medium is that this is rewarded more than ever in our society and especially now that we're no longer like solely based in movies and television that it is sort of self-created I've never seen truth and honesty so rewarded than it is today because I just think like we, you know, you and I are close in age. We grew up where we fell in love with personas Uh and the mystery of like these famous people. And they would kind of come in and out of like our, out of, out of the spotlight. And now I find that because everyone's putting up some image that they want you to believe in on their Instagram or their social media, when someone can be this candid, I think people are refreshed to know like, oh, thank God, like there's someone out there that's human too. I'm not alone in this in my unfiltered life. Right. Okay. Maybe. I, I appreciate that a lot. And, um, you know, what uh, I, I myself have been inching towards doing my own podcast. Yeah. And, uh I, I just felt like, you know, for the longest time, like, oh, God, everybody has a podcast. Like, I'm uh, you know, self-conscious about how shitty my voice is, <laughs> you know, like, I, uh, you know, this and that. And I just couldn't really bring myself to do it. But then I decided, all right, if if I can have an angle on it where... Like I outfit a camper van as a traveling studio. It can be like I, you know, talk on microphones while we're driving around and on our way to go get into some kind of an activity, and that'll give me like a cool angle and a like a, kind of a hook on it. I love it, and uh, I I love it too. But as a, has been my experience, I got a contract with Full Screen, which for me has been uh, really wonderful, man. I've I've been really thrilled about it, and they've you know been helping me to uh stay on a on a diligent you know upload schedule of putting up new youtube videos every week mm. and they've been candid with me too when i've said okay here's my video and you know sometimes they say do you have anything else you know like yeah. and their their uh you know their sensibility has been pretty on point you know and so i've been now it's turned into this like anxious thing where i feel like i'm running away from an an, av- an avalanche that's chasing behind me because like just the pressure to come up with okay what what are the, what are the ideas for the videos and try to keep the the level up there but but it's become clear that the the conversations in the van have not 
been like the most those have been the ones where they say do you have anything else you yeah. know and so then i realized that uh that i think what i what i really need to do is actually let the youtube content be the one thing and have what we're doing now which is why i first asked you do you have a video component he said no just audio i think that i need to do if I'm going to do my own podcast, which I am now resigned to, I'm going to, I need to have it live in an only audio world, you know, yeah. and, and do the YouTube and have those things separate. I can't really merge them together, I feel like. But the point I'm, that I'm getting to is that um, initially, as I warmed up to the idea, friends of mine who have podcasts that aren't like you know big like the humongous audiences sure i i they I, I reached out to them and i said hey let's do your podcast but let's record it in my van let me like kind of be have it be a practice run and let me uh you know and then at the end of the day we'll take all the recordings and you upload it to your deal mm. so we'll pretend it's my podcast but it's going up on your channel I love and, it. And such and such. And I did that twice. In both cases, when it went up, like I was, you know, really like, uh, and this is such a reckless, dangerous fucking thing to do, but I went into the comment section to like see how people responded to it. And uh, there's like, you know, the people who are just there to, you know, be, be negative. But there was a lot of constructive stuff where they said, man, let the guy talk that, you know, that I would cut people off. So in one sense, I'm really like nervous about that, you know, it's a hard, it's such a hard balance and I'm trying to get better at it as well. And I feel like people like Joe Rogan are brilliant at it. I mean, especially he had Eric Weinstein on his pod a couple of days ago or a couple of weeks ago. I think there was maybe 11 minutes where Rogan didn't say a thing. But it's a balance because inevitably when you become – when you love a podcast, it's because of the host. And then because secondarily because they introduce – they interview really interesting people. But what's that balance? Like right. how much are you qualifying your own story? Someone wrote to me recently. They were like, we get it. Like we know you used to be like a kid actor and that you were fat and you got sober and like no one cares. Like we've heard, like, we've heard it over five episodes now. Like we don't need you to reinforce it. But Did you like uh, – I'm, I'm trying to figure out like why, why that stuck with you. Was it like they were just being shitty or were you taking it as like some kind of a constructive and helpful – I think both. Uh-huh. I think they're I think first fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. And secondly, I I get tired of it a little bit, but inevitably we only have our stories. Sure. So, I think it's it's to your point finding that balance of when to take the lead a little bit more and maybe speak up and then other times like this where I just want to be the audience as well. Right. And perhaps it's because my experience with podcasting in general has been where, you know, I'm the guest and I'm there to, you know, like diatribe it. Sort yeah. Of, you know, and the, the host is just a different role, I think. Um, but in any case, uh, I, it's it's an, it's interesting. And, and I, I welcomed that. Those people who said that I was interrupting, I, I really welcomed that. I thought, okay, like that's something that that I'm going to be, you know, be mindful Cognizant of. of. Yeah. I, I find my greatest duty as a host is to set the interviewee up to be interesting. 
uh-huh. and to look great and to truly be like the guy throwing the alley-oop up and right. saying, like, you dunk it, baby. Like, I'm just here setting you up. Cool, man. So to that point of what you were saying a little bit earlier, it's like, do you contend with, and your, you know, your journey getting sober and sort of, you've had this incredible road that you've walked and, and it's been quite public. And yet I would imagine, do you still contend with people who have an image of you when they meet you? Not too much, but uh, I I feel like that brought me back to just something I wanted to close the loop on, which is those statistics that kept me loaded ultimately would keep me sober. Mm. You know, I really feel like because I had with my 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 knowledge of alcoholism from my family, with uh, my awareness of the statistics, you know, of how much the odds are stacked against us, five percent make it. Um, I feel that when I was in that psych ward and I made the decision, like, okay, I'm going to do this and I don't want to pack a bag and I don't want to think about it. And I'm going, I just want to go straight there and I'm going to do this. Yeah. And it was this like full decision that I made like with, with all of me. And, um, I think that if somebody were to appear at that moment, when I made that decision in that hallway, in that psych ward, if somebody would have shown up and said, Hey, like, you're thinking about committing yourself to a program of recovery. And before you do that, I just want to remind you that only 5% of people make it, you know, mm. like 95% chance you're going to fail, dude. Are you still? And I think that at that point I was like, I had become ready, you know? So I think at that point I would have viewed it as like, Oh, 5% make it. So you're telling me it can be done, you know, like, and if I look at it from that perspective, I've, beat bigger odds than that in a, in everything I've ever done in my life, really. But more specifically, and as it relates to the secret club, it's really, really very much the same thing as uh, like, you know, a nature show, like wildlife safari, where you've got the pack and like the predator, you know, which is the disease is really not interested in the pack as much. The predator is looking for the, the, the injured one, the, you know, the lame one, the, yeah. the, the run, the one that just wanders away from the pack. Those are the ones that are getting picked off. You know, like if you're in the pack, like that's where you know, the safety in numbers is. And so that's really, it's like, oh, okay. So now I look at it this way. Only 5% of alcoholics achieve long-term sobriety, but those 5% are together in a group as the pack. That like makes it like, okay, you know. Reinforce. When you say 95% of alcoholics will die drunk of causes related to alcohol, then okay, then uh, like, how, what percentage of them are, are like in the bar, you know, not even like making any effort to, you know, once you narrow it down to the ones who actually like come into the secret club and do the things that we do and like really become part of the pack, then like all those statistics, statistics are way less, less gnarly. Do you, you know, when you talk about the statistics that they kept you drunk and then they kept you sober. Well, yeah, but- because like when I showed up at, at treatment from that, psych ward the guy in charge of the of the rehab i went to which just happened to be dr drew back then he was the, in florida no no and uh in- las encinas in pasadena and oh. he was um the director of the chemical dependency unit of las encinas hospital which was largely uh like a psychiatric hospital and was he the same dr drew as he is today 
Pretty much. Really? I think pretty much. I think I actually not even, I don't know why I said pretty much. Totally. Really? Totally. Like, and, and like he's a board certified, you know, physician, the whole deal, addiction specialist. And like he was, uh, he wasn't my doctor because he's like, we were buddies, you know? I had been a, a, a guest on his Loveline show, like, you know, fairly regularly and developed a relationship with him. And I remember showing up and, uh, you know, I said, now, now I'm ready. I said to him, I said, hey, uh, I know that the odds are not in my favor. Like, however I said it about the statistics. I yeah. said, here I am, you know, to check into this rehab. You know, he's the, you know, runs the rehab. And I said, you know, I want to give my, I said, I don't want to waste my time. I, I, I don't, I'm, if I'm going to do this, I want to get it right. I want to give myself every advantage I, can, I possibly can because I know the fucking odds are so against me. Mm. So however long you recommend that I stay in this this rehab i want to stay significantly longer to give myself a better shot to give myself more of an advantage because i i understand what i'm up against and he said that he was thrilled to hear that that i had that kind of conviction that kind of kind of uh commitment but that he didn't recommend i stay in there for more than 30 days it was more of like a detox kind of a thing inpatient treatment he said, I recommend that you stay here for no more than 30 days, but if you really are serious, then then I recommend you go into a sober living environment, you know? Because if you if you go back to the environment you were in, yeah, you you're get a goner. the same results you were before. But when you say, I'm, I'm, I'm interested, like when you talk about the statistics, is there that, but also at, at the heart of it, just that you were born with alcoholism as I was, you found this magical elixir that remedied it, or at least in the, you know, with depreciating returns. Like there's, isn't there a part of us too, where like, we're just born uncomfortable and we found this great salve that worked. And unfortunately it just was like the worst bait and switch ever. Like right. it just didn't have the same results over time. Uh-huh. Like, I wonder if, if in 1995, someone had said 95% of people get sober but you weren't ready to hear it, you wouldn't have gotten sober. Uh, if somebody said 95 people get sober. Like I'd stay say, oh, sober. That, that 95 stay sober. Right, if and it had been, been reversed. Like, oh, piece of cake, I'll do it later. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so yeah, I can't get it. I, I, I was trying to figure out what you meant by that. But but yeah, so statistics, schmatistics were saying, <laughs> like, I was just not ready to stop. Maybe I mean, I can only speak for myself, but right. I had plenty of evidence, I think, before I got sober of like, hey, like, you seem to have a odd relationship with drugs and alcohol. Right. And odd, yet, dude. I wasn't ready. For me, the consequences were so immediate. Um but yeah, he he said go into a sober living and and uh, for for how, however it was wherever that willingness came from, man, like they, uh, I'd say largely every suggestion, you know. And I said I ended up staying in sober living because I was so afraid of uh, of you know the, of these statistics of like you know like like I heard everything and and as a result I stayed in sober living until I had two years of sobriety. Wow. Which, uh, and, and, and by the time, you know, as I approached two years of sobriety, we were filming uh, Jackass 3D. And I'm like, you know, like going to my like house manager saying like, hey, I'm not going to make it home by curfew tonight. You know, like, got to go get launched in a port-a-potty or something, you know, <laughs> right. like some weird shit. And, uh, 
Yeah, it's it's like you know doing all the chores, the whole deal, and um, it was so fun watching you, especially in Jackass 3D. And I don't know if it was specific to me because I was sober and knew that you were sober, but you almost seemed in such a wonderful way like a soldier, like you were just on it, like you were on your mark, ready to go, like yes, sir, let's do it. It was just like kind of refreshing. I was like, oh, he seems so good. I was motivated to prove that uh, that I still had it in me. You I know? bet. Like going into that, I really felt that I was sort of an unknown quantity. It was like, oh, okay, now he's sober. Like, is he going to be a pussy? Is he going to be funny, you know? And um, I really, like, because you, you could say, like, shit, man, now I got to do this shit sober, you know? Now I got to do, like, crazy, dangerous, painful stuff, and, like, I'm fully, like, clear-headed. Right. Um. But I don't think I was ever motivated to do any of that But because I was loaded. I don't think drugs and alcohol fueled that. I think I just have, like, a, you know, an inherent, like, built-in, you know, like, insatiable need for attention. You know, like, I'm just a full... Like, I consider myself a world-class attention whore, like, drugs and alcohol or not, you know? Do you think that's born out of you moving around so much as a kid? I don't think so. I don't think that that has anything to do with it. And I can say that, too, because I, I grew up in five different countries, uh, spoke three different languages, and lived in four different countries by the age of three or four. Um, and... Uh, then and continued to move like you know with regularity like all the way until high school and i like every move that i can remember you know when my family's okay we're getting ready to move to you know so and so or wherever it was never like upsetting to me like like rather it was like i had this uh this socially awkward like I cared so much about what other kids thought of me I wanted to win them over I wanted them to think I was so cool and I just like had this way of going about attention seeking that just brought about like the opposite results that I that I wanted you know like I tried to like yeah here I am like yeah you know and like I wanted to be liked and I just got the opposite you know I was just like my own just fucking worst enemy I just got in my own way and it was like I created all this anxiety and like you know problems at school and I just didn't have friends and I was just like Everything, I, I was just so driven to, and I did everything just fucking wrong, and I just was so uncomfortable. And then when my parents told me we were going to move, I was thrilled to hear that. I thought, fuck yeah, I get another chance. I can start over. Right. This time I'm going to be cool. This time I'm going to get, but then everywhere we went, there I was, you know? But all of your skills that you, uh, many of your skills that you've acquired are that of someone who is a good time. Right, in the sense of like, I would imagine 17-year-old Steve-O able to do a backflip off the roof or whatever. Like, that's very, I mean, that's of high value to a bunch of teenagers. Sure. No? Uh, it, over the course, I mean, in, in grade school, it was a disaster. In high school, it was pretty, you know, <laughs> still pretty bad. Sure. You know, like, um, and then once I, I went to college, like, very briefly, but I, you know... And thankfully, I mean, look back on it, it's like, dude, like, how did I get so lucky? And especially with all of the trouble with the the drugs and alcohol, I mean, if I had it to do over again, if I could really pick it, I, you know, certainly I would have loved to get sober way sooner, man. Certainly I, I, I just could have had such a, I feel like, you know, better 
better career, you know, more opportunity. Like I could have really made the most out of things in, in a much better way, but, uh, but whatever. Um, largely I look back on all of it and I think, fuck man, you know, like I bent like the, the whole drugs and alcohol part, like I really benefited from it a lot, you know, like yeah. I had this crazy persona, this, like if I was like one of these people that's never had a drink or a drug in their entire life, like what I've, like I used the drinking using to my advantage in a meaningful way. And then like when it stopped working well after it stopped working, then, you know, and I don't know that I'd really try to use sobriety, you know, in and of itself to to benefit me in any way. It's just that the drugs and alcohol don't, don't impede me, you know? Right. And I say this a lot, that that I'm so grateful to suffer from alcoholism as badly as I do. I really, like, don't, I don't, I'm not on the fence about whether I belong in the secret club. I'm not on the fence about whether I have to do these things that we do. Like, I know 100%, I just have alcoholism so badly that, like, I have to do it. It's all, yeah. it's just, there's no resistance there. And I think that for the people who are in the psych ward and think, you know, oh, once they sober up and they're like, well, I don't belong here, you know? Like, that's the person in rehab who has uh, got the darkest path ahead is the person who thinks they don't belong there, you know? Because there yeah. you feel like, oh, I've got some measure of control. I've got, like, I, I, I got this. I can, I don't belong here. Like, I'm not that bad. You know, it's actually that admission of defeat, like that admission of powerless that gets us started, you know? Um, and uh, I just, I, 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 there's you know, notable people who are close to me who it's just like really sad to watch, you know, where like, okay, it's, you know, the now it's just a year. It turns into years slipping through their fingers, you know? Was it hard coming back for the third jackass movie because you know the crew your crew notoriously likes to have a good time sure and, you know drink it up and live and was that hard to be around um i didn't have to be around and what what like a what a rad question too because um for jackass 3d they they had a rule that it was a dry set mm. now that rule was like you know pretty pushed around pretty pushed around and like some like there was like my buddy Preston Lacey. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't mind uh, me being candid about that when he had to do something like that involved like being up on heights or like something that was like really gnarly. Like he would want to like legitimately just want to like have a drink just to get it done. You know? <laughs> right. And he did it in a very like discreet and respectful way. Like I even I like even applaud the mm. way he did it like tactfully and professionally to get the desired result, you know? Yes. And then there's like Bam who would just like be belligerent on the set, get in a fight with this guy, fucking like screw up this fucking bit over here where he broke my nose and it wasn't even fucking on camera. How so, what how? Like he came up to do his Rocky thing, you know, and they had me like uh the Rocky trick he would do, he'd throw water in your face and with the super slow motion, like punch you with the other hand so yes. that there was this like super slow-mo jiggle and the water's going everywhere in slow-mo. And uh, they had a ruse to set me up. I came up with the idea like, hey, like I always, you know, shoot, turn, you know, shoot a BB gun into my nipple, the BB gun nipple piercing. And everybody knew that this would not be... Uh, 
this was never going to be included in the movie because they're weird about like guns and anything that's imitatable and like you just can't go and shoot your buddy in the chest with but they're like just we'll let him do it and we'll have him do it over here right so then while he's doing it bam can come up you know we'll have set up on the on the slow-mo so like, we'll just get the slow-mo of the fucking bb on the nipple and then but he'll be there and bam Ready can to come go. up and do the rocky well, fucking Bam was drunk as shit and fucking just got in like a fist fight with the other dude and then comes over and fucking does it in the wrong spot. So it wasn't on the camera <laughs> and he broke my fucking nose. Oh, uh, are you, so, are you angry so that, that moment? That, I mean, I was super fucking pissed about it, but like I've long since, uh, I'm just at, at this point, it's just, uh, you know, anecdotal as in, you know, a different sort of like as, as it relates to working on the set. Mm. Other than that, I never really had any issues working on the set, but where it did become like sort of uh sad for me was that like n what we were more notorious for we were never really notorious for being super loaded or drinking while on camera yes and i think that that's like you know part like kind of built into like our whole deal where like oh you know despite that we're reckless despite that we have like self-destructive tendencies and we're you know we're edgy and whatever this and that i think jackass has largely always been like very like kind of wholesome and maybe wholesome is too much of a word but i know we mean. were never mean-spirited to like third-party people like we kept all of our uh you know all of our like you know meanness unto ourselves and to each other and it's and just all... more compelling if you're sober because a lot of people right. do dumb shit when they're fucked up but that you guys were of like complete right mind and would put it, yourself it, it would ha it would have read if it was all like we're loaded it would have read in a way that was kind of dark sloppy dangerous dark, dark and it would have had like a weird energy yes. you know and uh, and so like yeah we were kind of like we it was all in a good spirit you know it was all, all in a good spirit and like you know anything bad happened it happened to somebody who signed up for it and it was like who was glad it happened at the end of the day but like what we were notorious for was like at, when the bits were over it was always all right we got it now let's go to the bar yes. so it was like it was when the day of work finished when we wrapped shooting for the day then. You know, universally, everybody went off to the bar to celebrate like a good day of, you know, of, yeah, you know, there was this camaraderie of like the after. And, and I found myself, I remember one time, there's one time that just burned into my brain where I went back to my room and I was like laying in the bathtub and I knew everyone was just hooping it up and having a great time at the bar and all the camaraderie and all the great. And I felt like hard done by that here I am like, and I can't be a part of that. And Ugh. like this, this sadness, like it consumed me, but, but very briefly. It really, it was very brief because I was like, oh yeah, if I show up at the bar and have a drink, then there is no day of work to celebrate, you mm. know? Then I've knocked myself out of the whole fucking equation because like, you know, like I'll be blowing everything. Yeah. And now, now like honestly, like from, from where I look at it now, I am so grateful, man, because, you know, I don't want to like, you know, sling mud or anything, but it's like, fuck man, like, there's there's two two 
pieces here. In the beginning, I, was, I said something about how like this, this, you know, discomfort, this anxiety that everything's not going to be okay, I think has contributed to me having this hustle mm. where I'm just not lazy. I'm motivated and I'm always grinding and I'm on a tour and I'm working like if I'm not doing something, I feel like, ah, and I, and I've benefited from that. Like I've really, really, you know, like fuck, it's been like almost a decade since we had a Jackass movie. Everything that we're talking about is almost 10 years in the past. Wow. And like over the course of those 10 years, I've really like, not only have I been sober for all of the 10 years since then, I've been like motivated, you know, I've been like motivated. And now like, I'm not like, you know, I'm not a franchise like unto myself, but like, you know, but I've carved out, like a career for myself on my own, you know? And I then I'm really grateful for that. Like I have, you know, a, a, like a, a successful tour. I put on like a really good sh live show that where people come to see my live show, like, you know, granted nobody knows what to expect and they don't have very high expectations. Like I can say universally people leave my show. They're like, fuck, I was not ready for that to be so intense and so entertaining. No, and I'm a douche for saying it like that. But no, you're I, beloved. I feel, I feel really strongly that I put out like quality work and that I work really hard and that I hustle and that I have the benefit of not just fucking wasting my time, you know? Like, I'm grateful that I have alcoholism so badly that I had to do something about it and that I have to continue to do something about it because as a result of d treating my alcoholism and staying committed to to be in this pack, like, I, I benefit so much because, it, it you know, it leaves me focused, not distracted, like, not... You know, and I can't imagine how fucking awful it would be to just have alcoholism, you know, not so bad that, like, I have to urgently do something about it. Like, not so bad so it can continue, but just bad enough that it can interfere with my relationships. It can fucking, like, you know, impede yeah, my ambitions. Like, just, like, let the years slip through my fingers where it's like, fuck, where did all that time go? And, like, how have I squandered the opportunity that was afforded to me, you know? Did you... um? What was it like only taking Advil and Tylenol when you snapped <laughs> your fucking ankle too. apart? That's a great question, man. Um, Advil and Tylenol have been really... Dude, it's so hot in here, man. I should... Uh, Advil and Tylenol... I mean, whatever. If, if you're fine, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm okay. Uh, if uh, Advil and Tylenol are really effective... You know, it's gotten me through everything. Really? Like, the, yeah. And uh, notably, the things that, that uh, were fucking awful were um, that I shattered my ankle and I had 11 screws. Now, of course, like they put, uh, you know, I general anesthesia, they put me under. Sure. This is another pretty interesting thing, and it's part of my bucket list tour, which I'm not like even, you know, um, trying to you know flagrantly promote but it really ties into this because it was a question of sobriety where um the idea initially came up with you know taking on trophy hunting like these trophy hunters kill the animals why don't they use tranquilizer darts mm. let the animal wake up like wouldn't that be like you know better so then i thought that that's how i came up with the, the determination to do a stunt with tranquilizer darts which was going to be to uh 
to go to the track and field with one of my buddies and with a, a foot race on your mark, it's that and they shoot tranquilizer darts into our butt cheeks, at which point we sprint for distance, Pretty you know, great. which, Pretty which is just a fucking, it's a hilarious idea. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Very and, good. And, uh, and so I wanted to do this when we found a guy who could set it up, but then the guy was talking about the drugs that, uh, you know, like ketamine and, you know, this Haldol fucking, oh. you know, Ativan. It's just a Saturday night. Shit that I fucking love, you know. <laughs> That's and I was good like, shit. And, and I, I was bona fide fucking losing my mind because this was the first time where, where my sobriety and my, you know, my brand, my, my fucking persona, my, you know. Right. Like my 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 passion, like like my, my ambition and my sobriety. This is my two strongest fucking drives. You know, my t the two things that this was the two things that matter the most to me at odds with each other. So what do you do? I I don't do nothing. Could give, and I was like losing my mind. I actually went to go meet my sponsor. Thank God I fucking didn't just go and do it, you know? Yes. Thank God I didn't go and do it. And thank God I just generally like live in consultation, you know? Like I live in consultation. I speak up when things are bothering me. And uh, I was actually reasoning with myself that like, dude, I'm only doing it one time mm. and it's for, for work. I'm doing it for work, you know? I'm sure and, my body will know the difference. <laughs> right. Hey. And, uh, and, and, and it was like, uh, I actually brought that. Like, I was like, Hayden's response. I need to talk to you about this. And uh, it didn't go any further than that. So I, so then still determined to do something with the idea. I was like, fuck, it struck me that, you know, that, um, that I've been under general anesthesia for so many times, which is different, you know, sure. that, that uh, notably that with the, the tranquilizer dart, it wouldn't be an intravenous injection because it's going in my butt cheek. It's an intramuscular injection, which like, and it is part of the act, you know, where it's like, you know, Scott, who does all the research and stuff and sets things up. He's like, what's well, going to take the fastest you can get knocked out that way is 20 to 30 minutes. And I'm like, well, dude, I'm not trying to run a fucking marathon, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, but if that's exhausted. what it takes and let's just do it, you know? And then we found out more and well, like, uh, I couldn't have those the ketamine and adamant, but my experience, because especially as I told you, I've got the esophagus condition. And so like routinely, and it used to be every year, every year they put me out with general anesthesia, give me what's called an endoscopy where they put a whole camera down your throat. Right. And so and my first endoscopy in sobriety, when I, when I woke up from the general anesthesia, like with before I knew what was going on, I was sobbing. I was fucking like crying. They're like, "What's wrong?" I'm like, like, sob. I was crying, and they're like, "What's wrong?" And like the first thing I remember saying was, "Feeling like feeling this way ruined my life." <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I was so actually deep. like, I know I was fucking crying because I was just like, I loved the way it felt, and I'm like, and, and you know, so that was. But then. uh I mean, now that's clearly 11 years ago that uh, that, that happened, and, and uh, I did it every year, you know, every year, and it just began, it came, I don't want to say it came to a point where I didn't enjoy it or anything like that, but it, it came to a point where it was just like, okay, routine. The, 
there's that sort of sort of routine and and there was like surgeries you know like where like going so and i just it struck me when as i was going after this uh tranquilizer dart bit that i was like man i've had general anesthesia so many fucking times and i've never relapsed so i can wrap my head around it so i changed the idea to uh having an i like be on a bicycle with an iv in my vein and having general anesthesia drugs plunged into it and then just fucking riding no yeah and you did it <laughs> yeah i don't want to give away how like uh any more than that but yeah that's we'll part talk of my tour off. we'll talk yeah, off I'll, I'll show you the footage dude i show it i show it as part my bucket list tour <laughs> is fully multimedia so you see every bit and the only way to see every bit is at the you know at the tour because it's all part after each bit i screen it and so you see this this fucking high level shit any temptation to try ayahuasca none me either. none whatsoever i mean and i think it breaks your sobriety i uh I, like I, I think it's a no-brainer that it would break sobriety. I mean, like the, anything. When, whenever we ask ourselves, and whenever we try to determine, like, where's the boundary? What breaks the sobriety? The question really is, what's the motivation? You know, mm. like, is is the motivation? Are you really like getting on a bicycle because you want to fucking get loaded? And I could say so purely and so clearly, no. This is fucking. This this is for this stunt, you yes. know, and uh, and, you know, and so, so whatever it is, like I and I did that in consultation, and and so like I have perfectly clear conscience about it. I cannot imagine going to do ayahuasca with like with like pure motivation. I mean, it's a trip, you know. You're gonna go trip. I mean, the therapeutic benefits of it are interesting to me because i i have heard that people have you know that that there's a medicinal nature to it and yet i'm so indoctrinated with the idea of like if i give myself a head change there's a good chance and to your point i'm not sure while half of me 50 percent of me might be virtuous i'm mm -hmm. sure there's like a small sure. gremlin who's like yeah baby let's go right. to fucking peru and forget ourselves right. for 24 hours um what uh the other thing I heard about ayahuasca is that that it's like the, largely a very hellish experience, and that like somehow like you uh, confront demons and like you know you kind of work through like whatever you know whatever it is, and that you kind of go through hell, and then having made it through hell, you emerge the other side like somehow like redeemed or and uh, you know one of my best friends. And, uh, you know, close, the people closest to me are all in the secret club. And the guy's like, yo, dude, like, I've been, I've been to hell plenty, dude. Like, I don't yeah. need to go to fucking hell, dude. Like, my idea is to, like, what do they say? Like, uh, religion is for people who are afraid of hell. Spirituality is for people who have been there and don't want to go back. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> what? Um, so my last question, I ask everyone this on the podcast what are your one or two Stevo commandments? Truths that you have discovered that you'd want to impress upon someone else? Uh, the importance of um, not never over promise and under deliver is a big motto to live by. Mm. And I think that like what's interesting is that that like motto, like sort of the uh, you know the inverse of that is has been. Uh, like minted in our our you know digital culture, like there's a word for it, clickbaiting. Yes. Don't clickbait. 
Yeah, overpromise and underdeliver. Like that's called clickbait. Yeah. So like you know, like as it relates to my YouTube content and stuff, and like you know when when like there's no higher praise than than you know when I see like you know Steve-O never clickbaits me. You know, that's like, the, it, it just warms my fucking heart. It makes me feel so grateful. It's so uh, rewarding, you know, and, and like, yeah, like, so yeah, don't, don't fucking clickbait people. Is the thing, you know? I love it. That's it. Yeah. And that was my, something my father really uh, you know, instilled in me is do not over promise and under deliver. And then other than that, if, uh, you know, like when people ask me like, Hey, you know, how do I do this? You know, like, how do I, like, I'm thinking about getting into this and how do I do it? Um, Like, universally, I'll tell people that the way to do anything, you know, that you aspire to do is to fucking do it, you know, start doing it. Yeah. Now, of course, that's with the caveat that it is important to be mindful that you're not, you know, starting off, you know, teaching yourself bad habits, you know. Be mindful that you're, you know, not doing it the wrong way because you know you never want to end up in a situation where you have to unlearn bad habits. But by all means, don't fucking wait for an opportunity to present itself. Don't wait for when the time is right down the road. Like if you want to do anything, the way to fucking get good at it is to start. Waste no fucking time. Like whatever it is you want to do, fucking do it. Start now. Do it immediately. And uh you know, then, 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 you know, that's how you're going to get good at it. My guy. Thank you, man. Hey, thank you, dude. What Can, a pleasure. It's such a pleasure. Can I watch you now on a bike under general? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Come on. Right. Two sober guys start talking. They can't shut the heck up. Um, that was great. I, well, it was great for me. I hope it was great for you guys. Um, Steve-O, thank you again, man, for doing it. I so appreciate it. And yeah, have a great rest of your week, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye.